0: morning. So as we prepare our hearts for the sermon, I'll read the scripture that Pastor Tyler will be preaching on today. This is Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And let and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, we, we're just honored and privileged to gather as your people, to hear your word, to sing your word, and to follow it. And I pray for Pastor Tyler as he delivers and proclaims the truth, Lord, that you would illuminate his heart to be uh, true to what is said. And I pray that our ears would be inclined to hear, and our hearts would be inclined to obey, And may the Lord Jesus be lifted up. May we see Jesus more clearly today. Lord, bless our time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning, church. It's good to be worshiping with you again this Sunday. Uh, As Aaron shared, we were not here last Sunday. We were welcoming our fourth child into the world, Winnie. Uh, Thankful for all of your prayers and well wishes. Susanna and the baby are doing well. Uh, They are resting this morning, as last night was not very restful. Um, But again, thank you so much for your kindness to my family and your prayers. Well, as we are wrapping up kind of the Thanksgiving week here, uh, and as some of you may or may not know, deer season, rifle season is coming to a close. I I figured I'd appeal to the hunters in the room if there are any that are here this morning. Uh, There's some that may be out. I too uh, grew up hunting. I often miss my time out in the woods. Uh, during my time in college, I did a lot of hunting on public lands. We'd go south from campus about 30 minutes in the swamps and duck hunt and turkey hunt. and. I'll tell you, although I've traveled many places with the Navy and lived in many beautiful places of the country, including Vermont, uh, there's nothing as beautiful as the swamps of Florida. Maybe I'm biased, but coming out of the swamps and you'd see these big openings And what was above these openings or hanging over these openings would be a Florida live oak. And and these oak trees are often wider than they are tall. You maybe have seen them in in a film, if you've seen a film depicted of the south of the trees, with the Spanish moss hanging down. Uh, These trees are strong. They're firm. They've stood the test of time. Many of them hundreds of years old. I did a little research. Uh, These these trees are so valuable that often a piece of property will increase in value of $30,000 because they're able to even protect homes from hurricanes. These trees remain unscathed, firm, rooted in place. And I think this image is helpful this morning as we approach our text in Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. You see, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's exhorting them, encouraging them to stand firm. He knows that storms for this church are coming. He knows that this church will be tested. He knows that for them to stand firm for the sake of the gospel is going to require diligence. And so, uh, although I have a rich text to unpack this morning and to preach, it's a difficult text because it's a text with nothing but imperatives. What that means is it's Paul listing off nine verses of commands to give to the church. Uh, And so, I have nine almost verses of commands to give to you this morning. But these commands are not harsh. These commands are not burdensome. These commands are giving to the church that they might stand firm, that they might be like that great live oak. I think the imagery we get from this passage this morning is similar to the words we read in Isaiah 61, verse 3, where the prophet writes, So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I think if we we're to heed the, the words of the Apostle Paul this morning, I think over a lifetime what we'll see is maybe some transplanted live oaks to the hills and valleys of Vermont. A people, a church that's able to stand firm the storms of life, that when your neighbor thinks of you, they think of an oak of righteousness, someone that is not strong in their own merit, but is strong in the Lord. Let us seek to do that this morning. Let me pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your kindness and your thanksgiving to us, Lord. This week has been a time for us to think about all that we have been given, but where the greatest gift we have of all is the redemption of sins through your son, his blood, Jesus Christ. I pray that he would be magnified this morning. I pray that we as your people would delight in him more, desire him more, give greater adoration and worship to him for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, our text today, I believe, flows from verse 1, and Aaron referred to it last week at the end of the sermon, but I wanted to pick back up in verse 1 this week. I'll read it for you now. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crowned in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I think that this passage here in verse 1 actually points us back to chapter 1, verse 27. This is something that we've been continually going to as we've been preaching through the book of Philippians. This verse in 27, chapter 1, says this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I think we need to see something here when we read this passage. You see, you and I live in a culture in a day where we don't like to be told what to do. And as I mentioned, this text is nothing but Paul telling us what to do and and I want us to consider here as we're being exhorted as we're being encouraged to stand firm and we're being given specific steps that we consider Paul's tone in this verse notice he refers and Aaron mentioned this last week as he preached he refers to them as his beloved brethren He's not rebuking them. He's not harsh with them. He dearly loves these people. He's given his life to laboring alongside them for the sake of the gospel. He's not an unfamiliar taskmaster to these people. He's a spiritual father. He suffered for them. Prayed for them, given his life for their souls and the souls of this church. He's built and established the relational equity and he also has the spiritual authority to command them to do these things, to stand form. It's ultimately for their good. And I'd submit to you today, it's for our good as a church that we as a people sit under the Word of God this week. And every week, remembering that Christ bled and died for a purpose that we might obey Him, enjoy Him. You see, I need this Word every week. You need this Word every week. And we need the Word of God every week as a church I think one of the most important things we can do on a weekly basis as a church is come together and sit under the preaching of the word. You see, we hear specifics today on how we can stand firm, but we don't just need these specifics today. We need these specifics over a lifetime of hearing the word of God, sitting under it week in and week out. That is what's going to sustain us. That's what's going to help us live a life worthy of the gospel. That's what's going to help us dig deep roots and stand firm against the storms of life. Going to church will not and does not save you. But if you are saved, you will only grow in holiness as you sit under the preaching of the word of God by the spirit of God, by obeying the word which we've read and heard. Oaks of righteousness don't sprout up in a day. They grow over a lifetime. And the same is true for us as we grow in our walk with the Lord through his word, by his spirit, in the context of a church. So let us together sit under this word this morning and let us learn how we can grow in standing firm. Read verses 2 and 3 for us now. And these are the steps that Paul gives for standing firm for the sake of the gospel, he says, "I urge you, Yodia, and I urge you, Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask also, I ask you also, to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life." So I want to remind you that. Although we're reading this book from our copy of God's Word this morning, that this was a letter that was written to be publicly read in the church. So could you imagine for a moment Euodia and Sintiki sitting, perhaps even in the front rows, and being called out, being told specifically, you, Euodia, I want you to do this, and you, Sintiki, I want you to do this. How do you think that'd go if Pastor Aaron stood up and specifically called out people? Maybe he said, Bruce Post and Dave Bridges, I want you to get along when you're in the back running the sound. Or Cammie and Dale, I want you to get along when it comes together on the music team. Maybe it wouldn't go over so well. You have probably heard it's best to praise in public and chastise in private. I think if I was being the one called out, I'd wanna sink and hide underneath my chair. But Paul's not taking sides here. Uh, He's addressing in a loving way. He is intentional and very direct. It's almost as though I have to do this sometimes at my home with Marion and Lily. I have to grab one by one hand and say, look in my eyes. Grab the one by the other hand and look. I have something to tell you. You need to hear me. Had to do it several times this week. Paul is specifically addressing these women with a loving concern and a loving tone. Notice that he calls them fellow co-laborers in the gospel. He has a high view and value of these women. These are not women that are stirring up strife consistently in the church. They're fellow gospel laborers. And even fellow gospel laborers from time to time need correction. They need to be redirected. And let me say something you may not want to hear. You in your life will need correction correction and redirection, to be refocused on Christ and the purpose and the mission of the gospel. We need to remember that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, that we are all on this journey of sanctification together. And the correction that Paul gives here is gentle, loving, direct, and it's ultimately good for these women and good for the church. He's emphasizing here a common theme we've seen throughout this book, the necessity of unity for the necessity of unity in the church. In, the Greek, here in chapter two, it, the Greek here in this passage is similar to what we read in chapter 2. And it's a little awkward. He's really saying be of one mind in the Lord or have the same mind in the Lord. He's telling them to think the same things, to be on the same page together. And that takes work because I don't know about you, but I'm not on the same page with most people most of the time. It means we have to consider others. We have to think the way they think. We have to consider others' needs above our own, and that's what Paul is urging them to do today. It may have been that Uodea and Syntyche both had great ideas or great purposes, but they were just not seeing one another's needs or one another's desires, and they need to refocus. They need to have their minds brought back to a place of unity. And just like a child who's cut or scraped their knee needs cleaning so that the knee can appropriately heal, lest the whole leg become infected, so does the body of Christ need correction and cleansing, lest gangrene set in throughout. I'll never forget the first time this happened to me, where I received some correction. I'd been a Christian for about a year at the University of Florida, and I was all in. I was sold out. I was kind of a bull in a china shop, probably doing more bad than I was good for the sake of the gospel. I was reading my Bible, praying. I had started a Bible study. I had been able to lead a younger man to Christ and began to disciple him. And uh, the, the guy that was investing in me at the time, he'd take me and we'd pray over the ROTC building where I was living and laboring uh, throughout the week and praying bold prayers that like the walls of Jericho would come down, the spiritual barriers would come down and people would come to faith in the gospel. But I was getting discouraged because as the Christian life is often slow and tedious, those spiritual walls weren't coming down. The droves and masses of the unregenerate, unregenerate were not coming to faith. It was difficult, and I remember after one Wednesday night when no one showed up to the Bible study that Josh, the man who was investing in me, sat me down and he asked me a difficult question. He said, Tyler, what happens if you pray every day, if you read your Bible every day, if you invest every day in this particular building, and these particular people, if no one comes to follow Jesus? Will it be worth it? And I said, boldly and confidently, no, of course they'll come to Christ because I'm doing, all the, I'm doing all the things the Bible says to do. And he gave me a very hard word that I, I needed to hear that day. He said, Tyler, I don't think you really know what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like to labor for the sake of the gospel. He said, if no one ever comes to Christ or no one grows in their faith as a result of your efforts, God will ultimately still get glory. When I heard that, I was so mad I could have cried. You see, in the moment, I had been laboring, I had been wrestling, I had been doing what I thought I needed to do to be faithful. But I needed to be reminded that day, the same reminders we've had from the book of Philippians, that I needed to count all things rubbish that I might... Gain Christ and be found in him. I needed to be reminded that the greatest joy and treasure I already had and that I didn't labor for results, but I labored because of the work Christ had already done in and through me, that I was responding to the gospel, not trying to attain a salvation, not trying to attain or receive God's pleasure, but I already had it in Christ. I needed to see that the Christian walk was not about results for me, but the glory of God. Perhaps that was a similar reminder that Euodia and Syntyche needed from the Apostle Paul here. And he asked the church to help these women see eye to eye and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He specifically says, help these women. And the word help here doesn't quite do the word justice in the Greek. This is a hands-on kind of help. It's almost visceral. Rendered elsewhere, it means to seize, to apprehend, to arrest. He's saying, someone grab, lay hold of these women and help them work out this conflict. Again, this isn't a harsh rebuke. It's a gentle correction. And the question for us to consider here is not... When conflict will come in the church, or if, but rather how will we respond to it when it does? How will you respond to conflict in the church? When a personal desire or interest of your own is stepped on, will you seek unity for the sake of the gospel, or will you give in to your own desires? If we're going to make it for the long haul, if we're going to be a church that stands firm, when conflict arises we're going to have to pursue unity over self. We're going to have to have the same mind in the Lord together for the sake of the Gospel. As we close out our first section, Paul gives this beautiful reminder to these two saints, U- Uodea and Syntyche. He He reminds them that they're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you're in Christ today, I think we need to drink deeply from the wells of this truth. There is a book in heaven with your name written in it. When was the last time you stopped to think about that glorious truth? I know for myself it's far too infrequent. I can get so caught up in what's happening in life, the busyness of a family and work, that I often forget to stop and remember that Christ has forever promised eternity to me with him. And he offers the same thing to you. That those of us that are in him don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned about what will happen next, for we shall certainly see him as he is. As we focus on this command to rejoice in the next section, I want to call to mind a passage from Luke, verse 17, where Jesus himself talks about meditating on this truth. As he sends his disciples out and they come back, this is what he says to them. The passage says, The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, Jesus, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If you're in Christ today, your name is inscribed in the great role of righteousness. You may be disappointed in this life, and you will, but you shall surely never be disappointed in the next life. And this is worth praising the Lord for. This is worthy of thanksgiving. Well, you see, we endure discipline and correction in this life, for we long to be with Christ in the next. So, the first imperative for us to stand firm in the gospel is for us to pursue unity as we look to the eternal hope in Christ. We'll see in the next section that the next imperative that Paul gives us is to rejoice and to pray trusting that he provides a promised peace as we stand firm in the gospel. Let's read verses 4 through 7 now. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a difficult passage to unpack, as most commentators agree that... Each command that Paul gives here is unrelated. They don't really tie together. It's as though he kind of sends out a shotgun blast of commands to follow here. They stand alone on individual merit and value for the purpose of helping us as believers stand firm, helping the church in Philippi stand firm. So the first command that Paul gave after addressing these two women uh, is the command to rejoice. Many of you are familiar with this passage, and for some of you there may be a, a children's worship song, that popped into your head. I'm not going to sing it for you now, but you probably know the one. Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always, at all times, and he reiterates the importance of this command by saying it again. Notice Paul's reference to time time here. When are we to rejoice as Christians in the church? He says always, at all times, the people of God are called to rejoice. This is one of the most significant markers and distinctions of the people of God throughout history. And we need to remember, as we're reading this passage, where the Apostle Paul is located when he's writing it. He's in prison. We've read of his suffering, yet in the midst of his suffering, he commands the church to rejoice. We, as the people of God, are to be a joy-filled people at all times. And if I'm honest, that's difficult for me. I don't know that people would say I'm a joyful person. I can often hide behind pragmatism or realism and think, well, I just call things like I see them. Or I can spend more times fix, seeing what needs to be fixed while, rather than things to be thankful for or taking joy in the blessings that the Lord has given. Uh, as is mentioned at times, I've, in the five years I've lived in New England, I've known New Englanders to be a stoic people. Even for New Englanders, we are called to rejoice and to rejoice in the Lord always and often. And, and I just want to say that uh, this command will likely be more difficult for some of you than others. Some people are going to deal with depression and anxiety. and It's going to be harder to kind of ride the roller coaster of life. But this command still applies. It's for your good. It's for the glory of God. No matter where we are on the spectrum emotionally, we're called to be a people filled with joy that rejoice. You see, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is circumstantial while joy is not. And why is it that the Apostle Paul gives this command uh, so clearly and definitively? It's because of who this joy comes from. You see, the good news is our joy in life is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon our background, our personalities, or our temperaments. Our joy comes from the unchanging, immutable, covenant-keeping Lord. Our joy is in the Ancient of Days. That's why we can have joy no matter what. It's not dependent upon us. And often what we need to do to tap into that joy is to remember the gospel, to remember our hope, to remember that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life everything around us may be chaos but we as Christians can stand firm and remember that our joy and hope is in Christ alone it's in the it's during the darkest days and seasons that we need to remember Christ that we need to fight to remember the gospel when the hurricane winds of the world blow on us we need to gaze heavenward we need to turn our eyes upward to Christ it's when we look to him that gladness and joy will Will abound despite our circumstances. You see, God has given us His Spirit, His Word, and His Bride, the Church, to remind us that our joy has been made complete in Christ, is being made complete in Christ. On those days of discouragement, we are called and commanded to remember Christ crucified on our behalf, to remember that we are written in that great book, and to be reminded at the end of verse 5 we see here that the Lord is near. He is with us. He will never leave us, nor for us. So let's work together as a church to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's not going to happen in and of ourselves. It's going to take us working and walking together to help us fight for joy in each other's lives. But with that command, I think there's also an exhortation that we have to be in each other's lives so stirring one another up toward love and good deeds to remember that joy. As Paul continues to give commands for standing firm, he tells the church in verse 5 to let their gentle spirit or reasonableness be known to all, clearly evident to all men. The watching world should see that we are a gentle, reasonable people. Aristotle describes the gentle person as the one who by choice and habit does what is equitable, and who does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. Do you always have to have your way at work or at home and make it known to everyone? Are you the type of person that is going to get what is owed to them? Or are you patient and gentle with people? Paul is commanding the people of God here to deal gently with others. This often means that retribution is restrained, that you will give in to the desires of others over yourself. This is a significant requirement of pastors and elders as described in 1 Timothy and Titus. Moreover, Paul writes of the gentleness of Christ to the church at Corinth. Christ does not treat us with harshness, the harshness that we deserve. And as one commentator writes, Christians are to be a people with an unabrasive spirit. Very practically here, do you rub people the wrong way? Are you the friction point in your relationships with friends, with family, or coworkers? The people of God are to respond patiently, lovingly, and gently, especially in situations where the world would respond with strict judgment and retribution. We are not commanded to be like the judges of the world, but we're commanded to respond in meekness like Christ. As I was studying this passage, I had a hard time of thinking through how could I communicate what this would be like or what it would mean to be gentle. Well, the Lord, in His kindness, gave me a personal experience this week. I, uh, being a Navy man, the Lord has taught me to plan ahead. And so... Thanksgiving was this week. I tried to plan ahead and pre-ordered my turkey. So I went Monday night to get my fresh, not frozen turkey from the store at the market uh, down the road from my house. And I walked in, and the man behind the meat counter said, are you here to get your turkey? I said, I am, yeah. What's your name? I gave him my name. He looked puzzled over the, the sheet with the names on it. He said, I have your name but all I have next to your name is several question marks. It appears we didn't get the type of turkey, the poundage of turkey, we didn't get you a turkey. And being the, the man that I am and dealing with the sins that I deal with, I think my eyes stared through the layers of turkeys in front of me to the ground. And I was very frustrated when I said, Thank you very much. I'll go elsewhere to find a turkey. Now, I, I did find a turkey. We, I, I fried a turkey. It's been a tradition at my house for the last nine years. Uh, but as I sat in my car seething for a moment, I realized, and this is what the text is talking about. This is what it means to be gentle. When I could have gotten the manager or demanded someone find me a turkey, what the Lord wants his servants to do is patiently, gently say, that's okay, I'll find somewhere in, somewhere elsewhere. And, I, and I'll confess to you, though that's what my mouth said, that's not what my heart was thinking in that moment. We're called to be a gentle people. That's how we are going to stand firm for a lifetime. And how is it that we can res- respond in this way? Again, the Apostle Paul reminds us, we do this because the Lord is near. Christ is both with his people, and he's coming for his people. No greater motivation is needed. Paul exhorts them in the pursuit of their unity, the pursuit of daily rejoicing, their pursuit of gentleness to remember that Christ has come and he is coming. Therefore, we stand firm. Having addressed this unity in the church, in, in these verses, Paul addresses what seems to be a significant concern of anxiety in the church. Boy, this is a word for the church today, is it not? We're an anxious, fearful people. Our country has changed. Our schools have changed. Our very history is being rewritten before our eyes. But I don't know that it even compares to what was happening in Paul's day, imagine the tumultuous change that was happening in the early church, where persecution and jail were normal, where tyrannical rule was the norm in the Roman Empire. There must have been much anxiety in that, the church of that day as well. And the cure then and the cure now for the people of God is prayer. That's what the apostle Paul points us to. Notice that Paul does not say here, he, the Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, not your future, not your past, not your children or your grandchildren or your job or the, I, I wrote in, the, in this manuscript, the coming winter, but it appears it's here, or your uh, retirement or anything. He says, be anxious about nothing, that we're not to be an anxious we're not to worry that times will change, that people will change, but our trust is in an unchanging God of the ages. And Paul contrasts here being anxious about nothing with praying about everything with thanksgiving. Paul acknowledges that in this life we will have trouble. There will be situations and circumstances that are difficult. And what are we to do? We're to stop and pray with a thankful heart. Why do Christians have thankful hearts when they pray? Again, we remember that we've been forgiven in Christ. Do you see that? We are bought by the blood of Christ. Nothing else matters in comparison to this reality. Therefore, we pray with thanksgiving. If you're forgiven today in Christ, you can look to eternity with great hope that surpasses the anxieties that you may be dealing with today. The problem, problems of this world pale in comparison to the eternal glory that awaits us. We need the daily reminder of the gospel, the reminder that worshiping Christ for all eternity is what awaits us for those who believe. This reality shapes us as well as how and what we pray. When we pray, we present our request to God and trust that His will will be done. This means that we can pray and then trust the Lord with the outcome, whether it's the outcome we desire or not. Verses 6 and 7 may be familiar to you. Many Christians learn these verses very early on in the faith. I can remember these being Two of the first verses I ever memorized, but even as I was studying God's Word this week, I was reminded of how every time we read the Word of God, it, I, you're able to uncover new rich truths. And such was the case as I studied these two verses. The first observation that stood out is the Apostle Paul uses three words to describe prayer here in this text. And it's three different types of praying. First, he says, present your prayers. Then, he says, supplications, or some of your translations may say petitions. And then lastly, he says, present your requests to God with thanksgiving. So, I think the question we can ask ourselves is, why did God expound, or why did Paul expound on such a variety of prayers here? Well, if you study the text and look at cross-references, you'll find that the Apostle Paul is giving us specific, direct ways to pray in the Lord. So the first word we have here is simply, in verse 6, prayer. The Apostle Paul tells us to pray. But specifically, the type of prayers he's telling us to pray is intercessory prayers. That is, prayers on others' behalfs. It's the same word for prayer that you read in Ephesians 1.16, where Paul writes, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The apostle Paul is praying for others. He's telling us here in this first word to be praying for each other. Anxiety in the church is to be addressed by praying for one another. That's the first way we're told to pray. The next way we see or the next word we see is either supplication or petition. And one commentator states that this word denotes an urgent request to meet a need exclusively addressed to God. So, praying to God to ask that the Lord would meet an urgent need. And we saw this back in chapter 1, verse 19 of this letter where Paul writes, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul urgently is desiring and asking for deliverance. So the church is praying for his deliverance. It's an urgent request. That would be like if we find Find out that someone in the church has a need or someone is sick or someone has a new baby or is laboring with a new baby. It would be stopping to pray. It's an urgent request. So we're told to pray for others. We're told to pray urgently for others. And the third word we see here is present your request to God. These are specific things we're asking God for that are in accordance with His good pleasing and perfect will. We see this same word in first John four first John five verses fourteen through fifteen, where John writes, and this is And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. So this is praying specific prayers that are in accordance with the will of God. Think of praying that your neighbor would come to Christ. Praying that your coworker would come to Christ. It's a specific prayer in accordance with the will of God. So to summarize, Paul tells us and implores us to pray for others, to pray for urgent matters, and to pray for specific needs or prayers in accordance with God's will. In summation, we're commanded to be a praying people. It is praying in these ways consistently that we become a steadfast people that, again, are able to stand firm for the sake of the gospel. And and I just want to charge the men in the room right now for a moment. Pray with your families, pray with your wives and your children. Let them hear you pray urgently, consistently, in specific prayers. May your family hear you pray for their salvation. May they hear you repent of your sins. May they hear you pray prayers of thanksgiving. This text isn't saying pray a quick prayer before a meal, although we should do that and we should thank the Lord. It's saying we are to be a praying prayer. And so I urge you, men in the room, may your households be households of prayer. Lead your family. As we look to see our children and our grandchildren stand firm in the Lord, as we see this nation and our nation becoming more and more wicked, if they're going to stand firm, it's in our homes that we can model this, where we're a praying people, that, that we might stand firm, that our children might stand firm, that our grandchildren might stand firm in the Lord, now, if you feel intimidated or want to learn how to pray, well brothers i 'd encourage you. We pray every Monday morning at six a m come pray with us there 's a lot of mornings at four forty five where i didn 't want to get up, and it was probably my motivation of a cup of coffee that got me up instead of uh, the spirituality of going to pray with brothers. But there's not a single time where I've come and prayed with the men of this church on a Monday morning that I've walked away disappointed and not encouraged, not able to go stand firm for the rest of the week. I know the ladies too do a read, pray, sing on Thursday nights at various times. Come and pray with the people of God. Learn to stand firm. You'll never be disappointed. You'll walk away restored and encouraged in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. So why do we practice this discipline or obey any command in the Bible? I just wanna remind us as we're getting this healthy barrage of commands from the Apostle Paul, it's because we've been forgiven in Christ. That is the motivation for obedience to any of the commands of God. We're reminded that we have been saved for a purpose, saved and set apart as a people. So that we pray for others, we pray with urgency, and we pray specifically according to the will of God. And the result of this is that we're given the very peace of God, both in our hearts and in our minds, and they're guarded in Christ Jesus. It's amazing that when we pray, God takes our anxiety and He replaces it with His peace, His shalom. This is the peace the Bible says here, it's so, un- it's so supreme, it's unknowable, it's supernatural. It's a peace that you can't comprehend or explain in words. Have you experienced the peace of Christ? This is the peace that allows you to worship with thanksgiving when you've lost a job or a loved one or you're dealing with the great storms of life that seem to prevail over you. It's the peace that allows you to stand firm and cry out, It is well with my soul, no matter what's happening in your midst. Don't you see it? Standing firm has nothing to do with how tough you are or how resilient you are. It has everything to do with how much you are trusting and depending in the person and work of Christ. We're able to stand firm when we submit our will to his will. We're able to stand firm when we remember the gospel. And the evidence that we are trusting in Christ for everything in this life is most often demonstrated by our dependence in our prayer life. May we be a people as a church that stands firm after we have bowed our knees in prayer. Well, it's appropriate that as we look at these last two verses, that we consider Paul's final two admonitions on how to stand firm. He addresses here right orthodoxy and right orthopraxy. Let me break that down. He is saying that you need to think rightly so that you can act rightly or behave rightly. So as we consider the words in verse 8 and 9, let's read them now and see how Paul commands us to think rightly so that we can act rightly. He says this, in verses 8 and 9, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, what is, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Looking at verse 8, Paul is teaching us how we as Christians are to think. Just think for a moment. Consider how much your own thought life impacts your daily actions. How what we think about directly impacts how we live our lives. Just consider a moment the difference in your day, when you start your day reading or listening to news or talk shows versus starting your day reading and meditating on the Word of God? Do you think you're more or less inclined to rejoice in the Lord when you think on things above rather than the things that are happening in our midst? Consider the analogy of the tree in Psalm 1, which is planted by streams of water. This tree yields fruit and its leaf does not wither. This is the man and the woman that is deeply rooted in truth, meditating on truth. And the result is prospering, standing firm in the midst of life's trials. How effective would a tree be in bearing fruit? How effective would that root system of a tree be if it were uprooted every season and moved somewhere else? Would those roots ever be able to grow deep? The analogy here is if we're constantly having our mind in God's word and then giving our mind to the thoughts of the world, I think it stifles our ability to grow deep and drink deeply from the truths of Scripture and to acknowledge the good that God has given us, his common grace. And so I would charge you that we ought to be a people that begin our day thinking on things above, studying and reading God's word that will ultimately give us rest for the remainder of the day. I think a contrast here would be drinking from the rich, clear, cold, cool streams of the word at the beginning of the day rather than dipping our roots into the sewers of the world. It's not enough to come and drink of these clear, cool streams on Sunday and then to go back to the sewage water the remainder of the week. And this takes discipline. What we intake matters. We need to give ourselves to things that are above, to dwelling on that which is excellence and praiseworthy. We need to do this over the long haul for a lifetime. That's what's gonna enable us to stand firm. That's what's gonna give us the daily encouragement and soul restoration that we need. Paul's telling the church at Philippi and telling us to to immerse ourselves in all that is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, praiseworthy, and excellent. In summary, we're to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And again, this orthodoxy or right thinking will ultimately lead to orthopraxy or right doing. That which we think about will result in our actions. And in the final verse, Paul exhorts his readers to remember his actions, his faithfulness in teaching for the purpose that they might imitate him. He appeals to several senses to remind them of what they've seen in his life. He exhorts them to consider what they've learned from him with their mind, what they've received from him with their heart, what they've heard from him with their ears, and what they've seen from him with their eyes. You see, Paul has lived out the gospel before these people with sincerity and integrity. He's modeled gospel truth, and he's urged them to follow him as he follows Christ. He's a man worthy of following. They are to practice a life that is firmly rooted in the truths of the gospel, and he's reminded them of this in the last eight verses by pursuing unity, rejoicing frequently, praying fervently, and dwelling only on that which is truly good. The Apostle Paul is a true oak of the faith, and he gives practical application for the church here at Philippi and for you and I, so that we might be a people that stand firm for the gospel. In doing so, the apostle Paul tells us in verse seven, not only do we get the peace of God that is God's peace, but we get the God of peace. He contrasts the two. We get both the peace of God and the very God of peace. God promises to be with us as we face the storms of this life, the challenges of our day, And the very God of peace promises to be with us. So I think in closing, an appropriate question to ask yourself is, how are you doing? Are you firmly rooted in the truths of the word? Are you rooted in the gospel? Do you have peace in your life? If you don't have peace today and you're in Christ, your greatest need is to look to him. And if you don't have peace today and you're not in Christ, he is the only one that can give you true peace. Because true peace only comes from the eternal hope that we have in him. So let us commit to one another to be a people standing firm that pursues unity, that rejoices always and often, that's committed to prayer and looks often to things which are excellent and above, imitating each other as we follow Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded this morning that although there are many things that you have called us to do, we cannot do them apart from your Son in the Gospel. Lord, would the glory of Christ, Lord, Him taking our sins and giving us His righteousness, be our motivator, Lord, would we be a people committing, committed to one another and committed to stand firm, committed to being an example for those that look around them and see despair, chaos, and disappointment. Would they look to your church as an outpost of the gospel and see a people that are hopeful, rejoicing always, because their hope is in you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.
0: Would you stand and worship with us again in song? Um, Our next song is one of rejoicing. And so let's sing that with a rejoicing voice.